Hello and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. This is a podcast to explore how the world's top CMOs are building their brands and the professional commitments they are making as leaders. This podcast is a recording of our Future of Branding series. From the decisions facing CMOs to the commitments they are forging, the conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections. This is how CMOs commit. Good morning, I'm Margaret Malloy, the Global Chief Marketing Officer at Siegel & Gale, and welcome to the live virtual edition of our Siegel & Gale CMO Roundtable in celebration of International Women's Day and Women's History Month. Siegel & Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design and experience firm. Earlier this month, I led CMO conversations in Dubai, Dublin, London, New York, and San Francisco. All recordings are available on our How CMOs Commit podcast. I encourage you to follow that podcast now to be notified when we drop every episode. Women's History Month celebrates the contributions and achievements of women throughout American history. And International Women's Day is a day celebrating the social, economic, cultural and political accomplishments of women through the lens of brands and inclusive storytelling. Let's meet our panel. First, we have Martha Boudreau, the Chief Communications and Marketing Officer of AARP. And all of our panelists will answer the following prompt. Please tell us your hometown and in one phrase or one word, equity is essential to our business goals because. Good morning, Martha. Okay, I am delighted to go first. Thank you. My hometown is the fabulous Detroit, Michigan. And embracing equity is important to our business because our business is social mission and gender equity is essential to our social mission focus. Next, let us welcome Michelle Byron, SVP Partnership Marketing at NASCAR. Thanks for having me. I am from the thriving metropolis of Williamstown, West Virginia. And I would complete the phrase by saying that equity drives positive business results. That's why we need it. And Charla Anderson is the director of Glo and global head of brand and creative at Google Cloud. Hello, good morning, good afternoon. So excited to be here. I'm originally from Queens, New York, and it is the borough that has so many languages spoken. And embracing equity is meaningful from a business perspective. I agree. It's about driving business results. It's also about retaining and attracting the talent that reflects the customers and the communities that you serve. And so it's really critical to make sure that we have that parallelism in how we go to market. Next, Dana Siegel is the Vice President of Brand and Product Marketing at Girl Scouts of the USA. 
Thank you, Margaret. Thanks for having me. I am originally from Long Island and unfortunately no relation to Alan Siegel, but equity is so important for our business because today's girls are tomorrow's leaders and they are not waiting until tomorrow to lead. Anna Villegas is the CMO of AffiniPay. Anna. Hi, everyone. So, honored to be here. My, I'm originally from Lima, Peru, and embracing equity is critical for our business because it drives employee satisfaction and retention, and our employees and our people are the best asset for us. Jennifer Durgan is the North American Lubricants Marketing Director at ExxonMobil. Hello. I am from Fairfax, Virginia, and embracing equity is relevant to our business because it's relevant to our customers. Thank you, Jennifer. Next up is Maurice Jones, the recent former CEO at 110. Maurice. Good morning. My hometown is Norfolk, Virginia, and embracing equity is relevant to every business that I've been a part of because it is a key strategy for hiring, retaining, and promoting great talent. And you can't be great without great talent. Devika Methrani is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at New York Presbyterian. Good afternoon, Margaret. So I am from the great city of New York and actually born at the hospital where I am currently working, which is very exciting. I embracing equity is incredibly important to us, similar to Inshallah and Maurice's responses, because it allows us to build diverse teams, which when you think about patient care and the communities that we serve, being a reflection of those communities is incredibly important. Simon Gergi is the VP of Portfolio Strategy at Unilever. Everyone, lovely to be here. My hometown is a small Irish Midlands town called Athlone, though I spent most of my career on the U.S. West Coast. And the word I chose was existential. Essentially, it's existential for our business and our brands. And finally, patiently waiting is our friend Julie Haddon, the CMO of the National Women's Soccer League. Hi, everybody. I'm the CMO, as Margaret mentioned, of the NWSL, which is the National Women's Soccer League. I am from originally Chicago. I am currently based in San Francisco. Embracing equity to me is how the NWSL and our league, our clubs and our fans all show the world how these exceptional athletes that are part of the NWSL, the best in the world on any stage and the best in their sport, make up this league. And equity to me is how we are making the world a better place for women through sport. Wonderful. So as you can all see, we have a remarkable panel. I'm now going to spend just a few moments with each speaker and invite you to share an initiative on the brand level across the organization that you believe is driving gender equity and importantly, what we can all learn from that program. Martha, Get us started, please, with an example from ARP. As most people know, ARP represents people over the age of 50, helping them live their best lives. And one issue is fundamental to living your best life for almost half your life, and that's financial security and financial resilience. So we put an enormous amount of effort and focus on helping women in particular plan for the second half of their lives. And the reason for that is because recent research and research over the years has shown that fewer than 10% of women feel confident that they have saved enough money for retirement. And re remember, re retirement can be 
50 years. It can be half of your life. And the reason for that, as you would expect, is that women take time off to have families and to manage their families. There is work pace, equity issues that they suffer from. There's age discrimination that they suffer from as they try and go back into the workforce after they have their children. So it's essential that regardless of where they are with their age or their life stage, that they understand that they have the power to save for retirement and manage their financial resources for retirement. So working with the Ad Council, we did a campaign called We, it's called we Say Save It. And it was asking women, challenging women to save two, to start saving 2% of their income or save 2% more if they were already saving specifically for retirement. And I would just say that it was very important that we have a strong voice and empowering message because so often saving for retirement and creating financial resilience for women seems overwhelming because of cultural norms that imply that women aren't good with money despite the fact that they manage budgets, they're in many cases equal earners, and then and some of them are saving as it was, but we decided to take on that issue and empower women to say, I can do this, I can save, I can start now. So it was a social, it was a social campaign. There were PSAs that were involved all across digital channels. And it's something that we're really proud of that we took on a social stigma about women and how they deal with money. And we tied it directly to women being empowered to save for retirement, and especially those that had not started before. It was targeted at women 40 to 60, and by all measures, it was very successful. Martha, how did the members respond to this initiative? It's a, The message, we say save it, was so empowering that what we did, the call to action for the campaign was to drive them to a website and to a digital tool that helped them calculate specifically what would be involved in saving 2% of their income. Because you have to, when we face these big issues, especially big financial issues in our life, you have to take them on one step at a time. And so to go from having 10% of women feeling as though they'd saved enough for retirement and trying to move that up incrementally this is a long-term goal for us and it allows women to take charge and to be able to understand and see that there is a pathway to financial stability and financial security as they age. And again, women spend half, to, because of longevity, women are spending half their life over 50. And if they get to 50 and they haven't started saving yet, they are frantic to have a path forward to help themselves do that. Any surprise challenges or lessons from the initiative? It sounds like an extraordinarily pragmatic program, well executed. Yes. You know what the challenges are? The challenges are financial. The challenges are keeping it going, right? We all have budgets that we have to deal with. But as I said earlier, gender equity and financial equity is so fundamental to our social mission that we have the We Say Save It program and then it is tied into other financial education programs that we have, committing the funding and not taking our eye off the ball. So often as marketers, we go, okay, we did that campaign, that was successful, okay, now what's next? And we have to stay on it. And so there's an amount of discipline that we have to put behind the campaigns and linking them all together, which I think ultimately will continue to drive success. 
It's an excellent point about the need for consistency and continuity of a program that is working. Thank you for that, Martha. So, Michelle, let's go for an example at NASCAR, please. Yes, we're very proud of the fact that our playing field, so to speak, is gender equal. We do not have a separate series or separate league set aside for female competitors versus male. That said, we also know we need to put a lot of effort and a lot of resources behind cultivating and helping the next generation of female drivers in our sport. We also know our fandom is as close to gender neutral as you can get in terms of the demographic of our fans. So when I said at the beginning of the call that it's good for business, there's a lot of reasons that it's good for business. We know women-led C-suites produce more positive business results. And then we know on the fan side, which is the other side of our sport, we have to cater to our fans and we know that they're gender neutral. So female drivers are very important. So for this answer, I'm focusing on just one of the areas, which is the competition side and the competitor side. We have something that's well over a decade long in the making called our Drive for Diversity program. And this year, our 23 class, I believe is 50-50 women versus men, all from diverse and ethnic backgrounds. So we have it's nascar so it's very sponsorship driven and sponsorship led and that is core to who we are as a brand and who we are as a sport so our sponsors are the lifeblood of the sport and our fans recognize that and so anytime we can set up a platform where brands and sponsors could get involved we have overwhelming success than if we just tried to do it on our own so one of the marketing programs that we have is sponsored by anheuser-busch they announced it last year it's called the accelerate her program where they put up 10 million dollars over the course of three years to do nothing but cultivate female drivers in our sport, which is amazing. And we have other sponsors, Ally, Andrea Bremer, the CMO of Ally made a very strong stance saying for every dollar that Ally puts towards male sports, they will do the same and match for female sports. ExxonMobil, one of my panelist teammates here, they've stepped up in a big way to really promote and help support females and women and motorsports at all levels, business all the way through to competition. So those are just a few shining examples. And what we've seen is the business community, which for us is our sponsors, rallying behind it really yields some great results. And Michelle, any challenge you would highlight in this program, any, be it from the fans or their sponsors? Yeah, I think really it's just there are so many different parts and pieces to having a driver get to the point where they're on the track racing to where our fans can actually see them so it's really making sure that nascar as well as all of our sponsors who want to step up and do something understand that we have to hit the marks across the board that's media training and understanding social media especially in the nascar world engaging with fans is really their first point of entry and what we're finding though is that a lot of our female drivers one that's in our national series Haley deegan that came up through our drive for diversity program is really one of the top social media engagement competitors that we have in the sport so even though she's not racing at our top 
series, which is Cup Series, she's right there with all those guys from uh, and engaging with fans. And what we're seeing is the fans really want her to do well. They want to see her shine. They want to see her win. And that's really encouraging. But I do think going back to the challenges, which really truly are opportunities to make sure we're honing in on each and every piece of the behind the scenes, as well as the on the track training to get them ready to succeed. Thank you, Michelle. And Shala, now tell us about Google. Share an example, if you will. Yeah, so I'm going to touch on this in two ways. The first part is about our brand expression and a program that we've done in concert with a lot of industry agencies to ensure that there is appropriate representation as we think about marketing. The program is called All In. And if you go to allinwithgoogle.com, you can take a look at it. The intention is to lift marketing as an industry, not just to benefit Google, but it enabled us to take a look at how we are depicting different groups, uh, underrepresented groups. So as an example, as we show people of color, are we showing a diversity of hues? Is it lighter tones? Is it darker tones? If we're showing women, is it only young women? Are we showing women of all ages? Because we know we come in all ages and size. Are we being being diverse as we think of physiotypes and so forth. So all in was something that was, it's a toolkit that was designed and we partnered with the Gina Davis Institute on Gender, the Hispanic Federation, just a range of different associations, the four A's, really to make sure as we think about creating a table and having a brand expression that's really representative of the customers and communities that we serve, that we were actually hitting the mark. And and I will just share a quick anecdote because these things really matter. When people see themselves in a product, they're much more inclined to feel like this is for me. It considers me. It's representative of me. And so the importance of kind of really bringing that perspective to the fore is really critical. I'll also share that it's important, not just in terms of marketing, but it's also important from a product development perspective. And... Um, Michelle talked a little bit about this from a NASCAR point of view, but I think about it from a product perspective. There's one of the products that we launched last year on the consumer side with our Pixel phone called Realtone. When you think about color photography, when it was first created, it was really created and tested against primarily a white population. And so you have a tendency where people of different hues show up incorrectly. I have a mother who is much lighter than me. I have a husband who's much darker than me. When we're in a picture, we don't all show up as we should. And so something as basic as real tone ensures that no one is too dark, no one is too light, but we look like who we are. And so as we talk about authenticity, so often it's about voice, but a lot of times it's about honest depiction and making sure that we have the opportunity for our products to really re reflect the range of peoples that people that we serve. Another thing that I always think is super terrific is even in our sort of video conference application called Google Meet, there is the opportunity to have real-time closed captioning. And so therefore, someone can always be part of the conversation, even if from an accessibility perspective, they're challenged. And this can even be managed from a multi-translate perspective. So real-time captioning, so they can be part of the discussion. 
And even if, oh, I speak French, you can still be part of this discussion. And that type of inclusion, as we think about representation, it's not just from a marketing point of view, but it's from a product point of view. And I just love the way it ripples through what we do as a company and how we make products that are universally accessible and how we express our brand in a way that invites people in. And Shala, thank you for taking us to the holistic perspective around visuals, voice, product, and indeed marketing expression. Thank you. So Dana, now Girl Scouts of the USA. So a very intergenerational opportunity, if you would share an example, please. Absolutely. I'm sure everyone is familiar with Girl Scout cookies. I don't think I need to go very far to explain that. And I'm sure everyone has their favorite cookie. But what you might not know is that 100% of those proceeds stay local and they support the amazing activities that girls do as Girl Scouts, right? They, from rock climbing and camping and science and even travel, they're, they are learning skills through the program and all of that is funded through their cookie sales. The piece that most people don't realize is that those cookie sales are actually a program and it is the largest girl-led entrepreneurship program in the world. So when you see these girls out at a cookie booth selling cookies, you're not just supporting their fundraising and their ability to learn skills in science and STEM and engineering throughout the Girl Scout program, but you're also supporting the entrepreneurship skills that they're building through the cookie program, right? They're learning to make a pitch and to lead and to manage a CRM and to manage inventory and deal with real world business challenges that come up every year. So that support is building these skills that they're going to carry with them throughout a lifetime. So I do have to quick plug that if you don't know a Girl Scout and you haven't had a chance to support them at Troops, that you should go to girlscoutcookies.org and find a girl in your area. But when we talk about Girl Scout cookie sales, what we're really talking about is developing that pipeline of our future female leaders. And that means that preparing our girls for the world isn't enough. We also have to prepare the world to be ready for our girls. So we launched an initiative called Fair Play Equal Pay, and it is designed to help other organizations build gender equity within their organizations in a very cost-effective way so that we can help create equity for our girls and all girls to be able to enter organizations that are already set up and prepared to accept them and have diversity of thought leadership. So be prepared is the motto that Girl Scouts live by, but we're encouraging companies to be prepared to, to take our pledge and prepare for that female future so that our girls are prepared to continue shattering glass ceilings, but we need to remove the ceiling, right? So we are trying to take those steps together to help other organizations eliminate that ceiling. Excellent. Thank you, Dana, for that impassioned plea. And where can we see the pledge and participate in the so, pledge? So you can visit girlscouts.org slash fair play equal pay. Excellent. Thank you Thank for you. that, Dana. Okay, Anna at Affinia Pay, very different organization. So I am very fortunate to be working for a company, a fintech software company that was founded by the woman, has a CEO that is a woman, and at least 40% of our employees in different functions and different levels are women. 
So that is very inspiring. But we also are in the business to business. One of our main audiences are lawyers. And we provide to them the software, the, the payment uh, support, etc., to manage their practice. So one of the programs we have recently launched, and I'm very proud of, is a program that actually helps the final client, so not the lawyer, but their client, to access, to have access to credit. So traditionally, the challenge with lawyers is they can be very expensive. And also, if you are going through a divorce, you're going through even immigration things, it is very difficult to get credit from an official bank if you don't have credit history. So this program that we have launched provides the opportunity to access credit and paying on installments and also provides the lawyer uh, the opportunity to expand who they work with and don't have to say no sometimes to clients that cannot afford them. I would say the more difficult thing has been the awareness on the lawyer front, right? Because you are changing the way they approach a thing and say, yeah, I need to be embracing and helping drive a more, more equitable efforts. And this is one that helps them move into this other arena, as well as with the bar associations, which are the ones who give the, all the legality and everything to say, okay, we are okay with this, it makes sense. So it is a huge program. We just started, we've already seen adoption, but for me, the next step is going to start sharing the stories of these clients, right? What enable this credit enable them to do? How did it change their life just because they could figure it out, right, and keep their kids or any or even stay in the country? So I do. I'm proud of this program, it's, and it's something that we are driving uh, in marketing to to drive the adoption. Thank you, Anna. It's very interesting hearing that financial component re-emerging as an opportunity for equity. I see lots of potential collaborations listening to this conversation. Thank you, Anna. Now let's go to a very different industry again, ExxonMobil. Jennifer, an example, please. Yes, first of all, I love being in a position that works with the strongest consumer brands in our company. Globally, the mobile brands are, are about, is it about a $15 billion brand. And Mobile One is the leading synthetic motor oil in, in the United States. And we built this business really with men in mind. We have this, this foundation that is about talking to men because it's the men who change their own oil. And it's the men who are the ones that maybe take the car to get an oil change. And we are very successful building our business with this particular, with this platform. And we have great relationships with our sponsors. Thank you, Michelle, with NASCAR and Red Bull Racing. Even with all of the success that we've had, we asked ourselves if we needed to change. Why change if you're doing so well with this platform? And it's really because competition catches up quickly and technology can be closely duplicated. And the way that we're talking about our products was exactly how all of our competition was talking about oil. And it was leaving out a ton of people from the conversation primarily are women. And if we look at the segments of our customers, we have a segment called hobbyist, and we have 16.9 million of them in that segment. By the way, 50% of them are women. And we have another segment that are strivers, 20 million of them, and 22% of them are also women. But our conversation for the last 50 years has been primarily targeted towards men. So it seemed like a big opportunity for us. 
So our new platform really showcases our technical leadership, but it does it on an emotional stage. It looks at our cultural relevance and identifies Mobile One as more of a lifestyle brand, which sparks a new conversation, and we call it for the love of driving. And some stats to support why we landed here, 81% of people say that they like driving, and 58% of Americans say that some of their best life moments happened in the car. So when we think about mindset, we want our men and our women to be thinking that the open road is an open invitation to get out and enjoy life. It's taking a break from your current tasks at hand and the endless opportunities ahead that, that are there for the drive and that mobile one will be there. And we believe that the love of driving fits any person. It's not constrained by the macho car guy that maybe we were talking to in the past. And we're doing this with continued great partnerships in mind and expanding a bit broader like Rocket League, continue with Formula One, also with NASCAR, all of those indexing high with, with females who are interested in those platforms. And we've started two new Gen G teams, one of them a fully female team, which is really exciting. We're also sponsoring the third annual Women with Drive Summit in Motorsports. So a lot of great things here, but they do come with challenges. Margaret, you probably would ask me that question anyway. So I'll share the challenges. One of them is we do a lot in our social media channels. And currently, they are heavily skewed towards males. 85% of our mobile one social channel folks are male. So we have to be aware of that. It's primarily because that's who we've been talking to. And looking for an opportunity to broaden that is something that we're excited about. Our other watch out is that we're not planning to intentionally speak to women. We have seen our competitors show a woman changing her oil and you could go in straight in with that angle. And I just, we think women are smarter than that, but we do plan to not exclude them in the conversation either. The overall target is to be much more inclusive and this platform really allows for that. And campaign will show the open road and the joy of driving with images that represent all of us who drive and all of us who take care of the things we love and the things that we spend money on. And just opening the aperture of this campaign and being more inclusive towards women, we know will, will drive value to our customers. Thanks for that, Jennifer. Next, Maurice, please. In your recent role as CEO of 110, talk to us about an example there. I know integral to that mission is equity. Yeah, I think if you look at Overall, what 110 is doing, particularly on the marketing side, 110 sort of starts with trying to give people some information. So if you look at all jobs in our country today, for example, that, that pay $60,000 or more, turns out that on paper, about 79% of those jobs require that you have a four-year degree just to compete for the job. Uh, similarly, if you look at all jobs that pay about $40,000 or more, turns out on paper, about 71% of those jobs require that you've got to have a four-year degree in order to compete for the job. And then when you look at the workforce in the U.S. today, a couple things. One, if you look at all black talent, and that's where 110 focuses, all black talent in the workforce today, ages 25 and above, what is 76% of us do not yet have a four-year degree. 
That percentage, by the way, is 83% for Hispanics. It's actually 66% for whites. And if you look across all demographics in the aggregate, 66% of all talent in the workforce today, ages 25 and above, do not yet have a four-year degree. So the 110 marketing and branding piece is about showing how a credential is literally a systemic barrier to folks earning their way into the middle class in America, about as un-American as you can get. And it has a particularly adverse impact on communities of color and the focus of 110, black talent. And so what 110 has been doing is educating folks, doing a marketing campaign to multiple audiences, to black talent, to, to highlight Dana's. We are attempting to move, to open up, to remove four-year degree requirements and to others who can be allies in this journey. The interesting thing is if you look at the black talent that we've been marketing to in communities all across the country and who's responding the most enthusiastically, it's black women. Black women have responded the most enthusiastically to this message and have been the ones most eager to attempt to, if you will, get into the game, to put themselves out there to compete for jobs that companies are not requiring four-year degree requirements for. The other side of the coin, though, is us making sure that those companies are ready for those black women. And so we've been doing a fair amount of marketing to the companies about what it takes to truly become a skills first culture, meaning you, you allow skills to be the dominant factor of success at all junctures across the talent journey, at hiring, at promoting, at assessment. And that has been what the 110 marketing and branding initiative has really been about since day one. And it has resulted in remarkable responses. In fact, since really March of 2021, if you go from March of 2021 to the end of the year of 2022, about 90,000 Black talent without four-year degrees have been either hired or promoted by the 75 companies that have committed to the 110 mission. Okay. Thank you very much. That has been a journey. Thank you for that, Maurice. And I know it's a, a rich story, so I invite everyone to check out 110. It is among the earlier stage companies represented here today, but an extraordinary mission that intersects with so many aspects of equity. Thank you very much, Maurice. Okay, so now let's go to healthcare really important domain for women, of course, and Davika. An example, please. Absolutely. And before I start, Dana, you have me thinking about how I want to be a Girl Scout now. Forget my childhood. I want to be one now. Just think of be a troop leader. 
Yeah, healthcare is just an industry that is an unbelievable amount of transformation. If you just think about health over the last 10, 15, 20 years, not just the pandemic, healthcare has become so much more top of mind for people, right? Whether or not you get up in the morning and you meditate or you get on your Peloton or you go for a run, healthcare is very top of mind for folks. And then, of course, the pandemic has made it even more relevant. But one thing about healthcare marketing is that it hadn't changed a lot over the years. You were used to seeing a lot of white coats and operating rooms and honestly, spaces and places and imagery that felt somewhat intimidating and were very much about the healthcare providers and the excellence that's happening in the hallways of a hospital or in a doctor's office and weren't necessarily bringing the consumer and the end user into the story. So for us, about a year and a half ago, we relaunched the brand for New York Presbyterian and we introduced a platform called Stay Amazing. And it built off of some equity that we had around this concept of New York Presbyterian being amazing, but really making it about our consumers. And in doing that, it wasn't just about gender equity. For us, it's about gender equity, racial equity, and also social equity, which plays such an important role. And as I started with, we need to be a reflection of the communities that we serve and we do serve all communities. But what we did find was is that in doing all the research, the chief medical officers of most households is the quote unquote sort of the mom of the household. And they are that sandwich generation where they're thinking about their children's health because their kids call them for absolutely everything, even if they're college age. They are thinking about their own health as they're at that time in their life where their knees are becoming a little bit more achy when they come back from the gym. And they're also thinking about their parents' health. And so our brand was all about reshaping to bring consumers in, to bring that target audience in and reflect them in our advertising, in our marketing, in the partnerships that we do, in our social executions. And it really is supporting that brand promise of as your world grows, a whole world of wellness grows around you and trying to remove that stigma that healthcare is the topic you never want to talk about, that you never want to go into a hospital because you want to be preventative and you want to get ahead of your health issues before they become one. So that's a body of work that I feel incredibly proud of. And I do think it's changing the conversation in healthcare and is also changing the stigma around what has historically, I think, been a lot of healthcare advertising and marketing that you've seen in the marketplace. And thank you very much for that. And the emphasis on proactivity in yes. terms. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Okay, Simon, Unilever, one of the, I would say, OGs of equity work. I know you have many examples to draw on. Which one would you like to share this morning? I want to start with just why I chose the word um, existential earlier. So we've I, I oversee marketing capability across our prestige division. So we have nine premium beauty brands. So Dermalogica, Tatcha, Polis Choice, Hourglass Cosmetics. And so for us, the vast majority of our consumers identify as female. Six of our nine brands were founded by females and 80% of our workforce are female. So it is essentially at the heartbeat of everything we do. And I think just zooming in on one brand as an example, Dermalogica. So Dermalogica, Jane Worman, the founder, she initially built the brand by really focusing on a female dominant career path that was an underserved community. So at the time, there was no professional training or education for skin therapists in the US. And so she actually started with education first and built the International Dermal Institute. And so what she was providing was career paths and training for women that would end up getting jobs, but also creating a lot of small businesses across the country. And so it was education first. The products came really as a part of giving them sort of a 
tools kit, essentially, to provide those treatments later. And today, the brand continues to do that. So what you today is they continue to educate thousands of skin therapists on an annual basis and bring new people in, but they also provide pathways for those who wouldn't otherwise be able to get in. So they provide scholarships in the US, Vietnam, many countries across the globe to continue giving a way to like to have an income. And, and her philosophy is very much if you have an, a job or a skill that your hands can give, you'll always have a path to earning income. And it's again, becomes more and more important as you go global. And the interesting learning from that is that this commitment and sort of the authenticity of what they've built with Dermalogica not only has created a lot of value in a lot of companies and things like that, but it's also tremendous, created tremendous advocacy and loyalty to the brand. You've got generations now of like a couple of generations of skin therapists who use the product every day and recommend it every day. So instead of building the brands, most brands that would be the size of like Dermalogica would have built a branch, a lot of media spend and a lot of traditional marketing. Theirs is built just through recommendation. As we work with other brands, just generally, it's great when it's built in and the founders built it in. That's perfect. But it's harder sometimes when you're pivoting, you're trying to change. And I think the lessons from that example that we provide really is both the authenticity and the commitment. People can see true authenticity very quickly, but they also know when a brand isn't committed. They're not just paying attention during a campaign. They're always paying attention. And so these are the two things we try to bring as we move forward with all our brands. Thanks, Simon. For the reminder that our consumers are smart and they see what we are doing. Okay, our final example opportunity goes to Julie with the National Women's Soccer League. I'll stay committed to brands that our consumers are smart. Plus one to Dana, who my 11-year-old daughter salutes you for the entrepreneurial skills that have now impacted the Haddon House, where she is the future CEO of tomorrow because of the Girl Scouts. So thank you for that. I think when you talk about important campaigns and how we show up, I would say this is such an exciting year for the NWSL and for the women's women in the World Cup which is this summer in Australia and in New Zealand. For those of you who don't know, the World Cup happens every four years and it is the best in the world that gather and compete on the global stage. So what I think is exciting and what we get to do in our very young sports league is that we can build new things. We're not tethered in tradition of traditional sports or older sports that have been around for years. We can build the future. One of my favorite sayings is, do not go where the path may lead, create your own path and leave a trail. So we can act in a much more innovative way where we're inventing the future and be nimble and agile and act just much like a startup in everything we do. An example of that would be just this past weekend, for those of you who don't follow the NWSL, we kicked off our 11th season. Uh, on Saturday. And my team developed, as, as simple as it may sound, our first ever integrated campaign, a first ever big marketing campaign. We made a TV commercial and we made a, a variety of efforts around building the fact that the NWSL is the home to some of the best players in the world who will be playing this summer in the World Cup. So we have a campaign called We Play Here, adequately titled, which is a thread that's going to be used for a kickoff, which was last week and into this weekend coming up. There's a CBS game, a plug to tune in, 1130 
Central on Saturday morning, CBS, Kansas City's playing Portland, which is a remake, a rematch of the championship that was last year. But this campaign we play here is going to be thread throughout the season through kickoff, which just started into the eight month season that goes across the summer and culminates in November at the championships. And what's special about this campaign is that it showcases the teams and the players in a very authentic way. They make up our league and it's given us the opportunity to shine a spotlight on these exceptional talents, their achievements, their skills, their rivalries, their fun celebrations. We call them sellies, the sellies and the joy that they bring to what's appropriately called around the world, the beautiful game. And so that campaign we kick, we play here kicked off and it's voiced by the players in several languages. And it, and the strategy of the campaign drives home that fact that the best players in the world that will show on the global stage this summer, all competing for the cup, make the NWSL their home. And I think it's a powerful campaign because it really demonstrates that this is a major player. The NWSL is a major player in the sports and entertainment landscape globally. Julie, it's just a wonderful example, as we also heard in NASCAR, around the power of sport to affect culture and society. Any Anything you'd underline there in terms of that opportunity? You've had a wonderful career across a variety of industries. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to be very early in helping the Twitter team and build that out early. And I wouldn't say going back to 2008 or SoFi in 2012, eBay in 2003, DreamWorks, where I was in the marketing department on big feature films like Shrek in 98 to 2002. I think part of what I've been lucky enough to be is seeing a lot of transformation in the early days and what is called that veritable hockey stick moment. And I think we're there at the NWSL and women's sports in general and these powerful influencers who have a voice who stood up for pay equality and stand on the right side of history around equality and rights for all players and people. And equity is really important in everything we do. And I look around and I think about the growth that we're at right now with our sport. We've had record-setting ticketing and attendance. Just this past week, we had an increase in 48% of opening weekend, the biggest rate, the biggest weekends we've ever seen for our sport in kickoff. San Diego hit a record. The Angel City franchise or Angel City team in LA broke also their record or matched their opening day record. Washington, D.C., the Spirit also did that. So what we're seeing is record-breaking attendance. We're seeing audiences. We're seeing ratings up. We're seeing expansion interest. We've had over 30 markets that were interested in expansion franchise or growing the NWSL in their city. Sponsorship remains up and more and more talent have joined the league. We've over doubled hired our group. And we've had an exciting flourish of new owners that have come in. We've had people from NFL ownership and NHL owners financial services, tech, and even more and more people are going to be coming in. So we're pretty excited about that growth. Thank you. And thank you to everyone. There's a palpable excitement and optimism I'm picking up for the conversation, which is indeed very inspiring. I'm going to pick up for our final question on something Simon touched on, this notion around commitment. In my observation, in this career I've had, in the work I've done, largely organizations and their impact is a product of the commitments they're making. And with that as a thesis, I'd like to invite each of you to share what is your organization's commitment to embracing equity? And as important, how will you measure success? So very briefly, commitment and metrics. And we'll start at the top of the order with Martha at AARP, please. 
Thanks, Margaret. So commitment starts from our standpoint, I'm sure like everyone, commitment starts both early in life, like with the Girl Scouts, Dana, everybody knows the role that the Girl Scouts plays and don't do it for them teach them how to do it for themselves. And so that's what we're doing in terms of our commitment to education and empowering women to make good, solid financial decisions. But there's another part of our commitment as well, which speaks to our advocacy work, both at the federal and the state level, because we have to fight for pay equity issues. We have to fight against discrimination that allows pay inequity to go on in the workforce. And so there's multiple layers of our commitment at ARP, like I know many brands here, but ultimately for women, when they, when they look at the fact that they have the ability to, to work for their own financial security, sometimes they just need a little bit of the tools to help them start doing that, especially women who are at middle and lower income levels. So between our advocacy, our education, and our empowerment work, we are in this for the long haul. This is foundational to our social mission. And you can expect to see more from RP in this area of gender equity, financial education, and really helping women and men, but women li live their best, most secure lives over the age of 50. Next, Michelle, please. Yes, very similar to what Martha indicated, and I'm sure others will. There's many layers. And for my world and the world of sports, and specifically being a sports league, we have to lead by example, meaning that our own offices and our four walls represent what we want the entire sport and the ecosystem of the sport to represent. We've enlisted a number of reputable third-party experts to really not just help us get to where we're wanting and striving to, to get, but also really taking a cold, hard look at where are we now? What is that benchmark? And that's, again, within our own business unit as well as across the ecosystem. So the competitor landscape, the teams and their businesses that they have, as well as our tracks and our venues and our facilities. So really enlisting and putting resources behind these third parties to benchmark where we are now to help us determine the best way to prioritize getting to the end result and really measuring and taking realistic looks along the way to make sure that the improvements that we're wanting to make are being made and being made quickly enough. Never quick enough, but as quick as we can possibly do it, that's for sure. And Shala. So really quickly, I just want to first share a personal story about me and underscore why access is so important for economic empowerment. I grew up in Queens, working class family, immigrants to this country, and I had the benefit of receiving a scholarship to go to Choate, Ros Choate Rosemary Hall, boarding school in Connecticut, and it transformed my life. The sort of like possibility became so much bigger by having the opportunity to be in that academic environment. And then I fast forward, and I'm here at Google. And one of the things, and Maurice talked about this, is that education affords opportunity, but education does not have to be the traditional format. 
Google has an amazing program called Grow with Google. And one of the things I find super exciting is through this certification program, there's the opportunity, the possibility for lives to be transformed, for women to take on roles in tech that they had not considered, that they did not have previous experience for. And what you find is that these certification programs, I'm actually doing one now to become a digital leader, enable people to pursue jobs that they might not have been eligible before, that seven 75% of program graduates report an improvement in their career trajectory. They're able to connect with top employers. Median salaries start at 66K. When you think about the world of tech and what it can make possible, to me, it's so critical that there are more windows open, more seats made, more doors open, so that more of us can participate in one of the growing sectors of the economy. And these certifications are an easy way to come into this world even if a traditional education with four-year degree and the money required for a four-year degree are not a possibility for you. So I think for me, the commitment to economic empowerment is such a critical one that I feel personally, but I'm also super excited to see all these different types of people, groups that traditionally have been at the outskirts actually be brought into the center and become part of the tech world. Dana. That possibility that Angela is talking about is really the foundation of everything we do at Girl Scouts. And we are committed to not waiting until our girls are adults before we scream their accomplishments from the rooftops. It's really easy for us to like really just only focus on the girl market and not talk to everyone else. And that is what we have to do so much more of through our gold award, which is the highest badge you can earn in Girl Scouting. Our girls are making sustainable, lasting change in their communities and all over the world today. And they take on challenges like food insecurity and fighting menstrual health stigmas and building diverse libraries. Actually, we have a troop in California, which for their silver award project, they introduced they introduced an act to their with their in partnership with their local state legislature. So the Girl Scout Period Equity Act, which is a mandate for third to 12th graders to always have access to menstrual health products, was actually advanced to a vote. So like the amazing things that these girls are actually doing today, our commitment is to make sure that we are sharing that publicly with everybody so that we can scale the ways in which we show that girls are not waiting to lead tomorrow, that they are already leading today and they have earned and deserve our respect. We really want to make sure that those stories of impact and innovation are reaching a broader narrative through word of mouth and through social media and through national and local press. Anna, please. So Affinipe, we are committed to not only bringing the talent to make sure we have a diversified workforce, but actually giving them the resources and tools to have the same chance to be successful as everybody else. So they feel that sense of belonging. That's from what you pay, right? Who you promote. So they may not be asking for a promotion, right? What are, how do you train the rest of the teams that maybe they are migrations happening in the workplace that they are not aware of? I think that's very important. And I will say, I do have a personal commitment being a woman of color and an immigrant. It was not easy to get where I am. Even though they are there, they still don't feel they belong. Jennifer. I love that answer, Anna. I think I work for an oil and gas company. And for the first 10 years of my 30 years in the company, I was the only woman in the room. So the big commitment for us is to get more females and minority candidates at the top levels to be making the big decisions at the top. 
We've made a lot of headway, but we've still got a long way to go. And it's really measured by a pipeline, a very intentional pipeline, and a lot of intention to make strides in that area. And our male ambassadors are the ones who are really helping champion that cause. Maurice. Commitment for 110 is let's do it for at least a decade. Let's really, as a coalition, work for a decade. And the big metrics are hiring and promoting. It's one million Black talent in the next 10 years who don't have four-year degrees into family-sustaining jobs and careers. Much work to be done. Thank you, Maurice. Devika. I think for us, I think I believe, and I think many of my colleagues believe that things begin inside out. And so one of the things that we focused a lot on is we have a respect credo that we all live by internally, and it's very much a part of our daily lives. It's spoken about. It's something you almost need to attest to. And it cares not just for gender equity, but social equity, racial equity, and just how you treat other people. And when you make that a focus for your institution internally, that then reflects in how you care for your patients and the service that you're able to give to the communities that you serve. Simon. I'm going to do a personal commitment if that's okay. I'm grateful that I spent my entire career with female consumers, with female founders, and working with amazing female leaders and colleagues. And I have two very strong-willed and ambitious daughters. We, I recently returned to Ireland after 20 years in the U.S., and I am part of a mentor program, and I'm working with four female founders over the next year that are various different stages to help them achieve their goals. And my metric will be hours and days and sweat put into a system. Julie. I will just say a lot of what's been shared here. We talked about how sport has the power to impact and change lives, whether it's to entertain, inform, or inspire people around the globe. And so my commitment is continue to build the future of sport, celebrate and shine a spotlight on our league and our players and our fans that make up this remarkable league. And in thanking our panel, here are my reflections. Consistent with our five in-person sessions, this conversation on brand and inclusive storytelling touched on many areas from community representation to cross-brand collaboration, from intersectional awareness to intergenerational support, from optimism to the reality of what remains to be done to achieve greater gender equity in marketing and in the workplace. Most of all, I'm struck by the responsible leadership and the, of our speakers and the nuance of your programs across entertainment, technology, NGOs and B2B. The various programs are navigating a, an array of stakeholder priorities to achieve commercial and equity goals. When it comes to the opportunity for inclusive storytelling, the American poet Maya Angelou captures it well. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. When brand leaders commit to inclusive stories with all their imperfections, characters, stumbles and plot twists, they create equity, meaning, empathy, and belonging across stakeholder groups. From listening to you, our speakers, it is clear that storytelling is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. Inclusive storytelling is a methodology to unlock real equity. 
thank you. Thank you once again, our panel, for sharing your stories and touching ever so briefly and succinctly on the stories of the brands that you help lead. We very much look forward to tracking your progress. And my commitment and Siegel and Gale's commitment is to continue to convene these conversations. Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. You've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review and share this podcast. Until next time, this is how CMOs commit.